Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and coming up on today's show, as food prices soar, big agriculture is having a field day. How long will it last? Their combined net profits doubled to $4.5 billion last year, and strong quarterly results this week suggest that they'll do even better this year. And we find lessons from the history books for a new age of central banking. Monetary and fiscal policy have been separated for a reason. There are quite big risks when they start to get mixed up. But first, the brokerage app Robinhood says its mission is to democratise investing. It's now going public in fitting style, listing on the Nasdaq tomorrow, July the 29th. The usual cast of institutional investors have been able to buy shares in Robinhood's IPO as they normally do. But, and this is the novel bit, the company is also selling a third of its shares to its own customers through its own retail trading platform. It has been quite exciting to be on the inside of one of these IPO processes for once. Our Wall Street correspondent Alice Fullwood has reported on a fair few IPOs, but she's less used to being able to participate in one directly. For this IPO, I was able to go into the Robinhood app on my phone, slick green graphics explain to you sort of how it's all going to work, how shares will be allocated, and then you put a price that you're willing to pay for a share in at the end, and that's your sort of order going through. You know, it has been possible for retail investors to be involved directly in IPOs in the past, but it's quite rare, and the allocations are very small. Just a couple of percentage points of the shares allocated typically go to retail clients, And they are distributed by the big brokerages to their sort of most serious and important clients. I am not a very serious and important client. I actually just have $50 in the app, which I use to bid for this share. Alice, can you tell us a bit more about how different the, the whole process has been from that in a conventional IPO? Before most firms go public, they will engage with an investment bank who is their sort of advisor. And then, you know, its sharpest suited investment bankers will fan out across the country and they will try to sell the shares in the IPO directly to those big institutional investors. This time around, the roadshow pitch, in addition to that process, came directly to the public. Anyone who wanted to listen could dial in. This is all very much in keeping with Robin Hood's sort of customary anti-establishment direct to retail investors style. It's, you know, no other company has really been as inextricably linked to the current retail investing craze. And it appears to be working. Robin Hood is going to go public at an expected valuation of $35 billion. And it currently oversees about $80 billion worth of customer assets on its platform. 
$35 billion, that's a pretty hefty valuation. Are we able to judge whether it's really worth that? What are its prospects like? So the company earned about a billion dollars in revenue last year. So it's going public at a sort of 35 times its revenues, which is is pretty handsome even for a, for a high growth company. But I think that it's that those sort of growth prospects that really are anchoring this high valuation. Robinhood revealed in its IPO filing information that it now has 18 million customers. Uh, that's up almost 6 million since the beginning of the year and up from only 5 million in 2019. And that growth is underpinned by a lot of big sweeping trends. 50 years ago, maybe rich people might dabble in trading stocks directly, but most regular people earned fine benefit pensions, which were managed by, you know, suits in faraway offices. And over time, technology like electronic trading and trading algorithms have helped drive down spreads, drive down costs, and that has widened the pool of people that can participate. And it's in that technological change, that's where Robinhood's founders spied an opportunity, right? Exactly, yes. So... In 2013, Baiju Bhatt and Vlad Tenev, both the co-founders of Robinhood, they were employees of high-frequency market-making companies. And what they saw is that it might be possible for a retail brokerage, rather than by charging consumers commissions and fees to trade stocks, it could do that for free. And it could instead earn its revenues through payment for order flow. And payment for order flow is this process by which these sort of big high frequency market makers like Citadel Securities and Virtu offer retail brokerages a slightly better price for a transaction than is currently prevailing on the stock exchange. And the market maker takes a tiny bit of the difference between the price that it can give to the customer and the exchange, and so does Robinhood. They were the first to offer commission-free stock trading, and the big incumbent brokerage platforms like Charles Schwab, E-Trade, TD Ameritrade, and eventually the biggest of all, Fidelity, all succumbed and scrapped their commissions and trading fees as well in this sort of brutal and swift price war at the end of 2019. Well, if you make something free, it's bound to be popular and lower cost for investors, especially investors who haven't been able to trade in this way before. That has to be a great thing, doesn't it? There's definitely, you know, elements of truth to that. But there's a lot of unease about this sort of retail revolution as well, which has peaked during the sort of GameStop episode earlier this year, where shares in that struggling video game retailer spiked from around $17 in January to more than $450 a couple of weeks later. Robinhood had to suspend trading in GameStop because it lacked the regulatory capital it needed to um, settle those trades, basically. That sort of frenzy, that mania is one source of unease, but the sort of broader discomfort, I guess, from regulators and and commentators comes from two main sources. And the first is when you push the price of something down, people tend to do a lot more of it. And the academic literature on retail investing is pretty united. It finds that the more people trade, the worse their returns are. And the second is that Robin Hood exposes its customers to riskier products than have typically been available for retail investors in the past. And this includes things like derivatives and options and also cryptocurrencies. It's particularly concerning because that seems to be where Robinhood makes an awful lot of its money. So there is this sense that it might not necessarily end up working in in the best interest of retail investors. So with those concerns in mind, what are the biggest risks to the business model? This sort of philosophical question is, is it good for for retail investors to have free access to 
trading is one that regulators, Congress people are looking at very closely. There's this sort of huge regulatory risk that either body does something to intervene in the way that Robinhood makes its money. So for example, the practice of payment for order flow that I described, that's very controversial. Um, It's actually outlawed in a couple of countries like the UK and Canada. The SEC is looking at it very closely, sort of whether or not it creates conflicts of interest. Congress has actually already drafted a bill potentially outlawing it. So that's where Robinhood makes 80% of its revenues at present. If it were banned, that would clearly be bad for the company. Given all that, and given the number of users that Robinhood now has, might we see it start to diversify away from transactions in the way that other platforms and apps are trying to become you know, one-stop shops for financial services more generally? Yeah, I definitely think that's a, a strategy that Robinhood is pursuing at this roadshow on Saturday. Um, they've suggested that they might diversify into things like retirement accounts. You know, They might try and become a sort of money app in the way that uh, Alipay and its sort of expansion in in China has become. And it has already done things that are are a little along that line. So, for example, it launched uh, cash management services, which now have debit cards associated with them. I've been a little pessimistic about Robinhood's prospects in the past uh, when the price war broke out because the big platforms had all, you know, nicked its its comparative advantage. I was sceptical after the GameStop episode. And on both occasions, I have been proven swiftly wrong. And it has continued to grow extremely, extremely quickly. So as much as we can talk about these risks, there have been big risks to its business in the past, and it seems to have weathered them pretty well so far. Well, thank you for all that self-criticism, Alice. But before (laughs) you go, I understand that subscribers to The Economist will be able to catch up with you on how all this is playing out tomorrow evening, July the 29th, because you're doing a live event. Yes, that's right. Um, I'll be talking to another Money Talks regular, our Buttonwood columnist, John O'Sullivan, and we will both divulge all the things that we've got wrong in the past. So we'll be discussing sort of all things markets as well. um, And that will take place at midday Eastern or 5pm UK time on the 29th of July. And you'll get a glimpse into how we make sense of markets. Well, that sounds great. Can't wait for that. Looking forward to it. Subscribers, you can register and submit your questions for Alice and John at economist.com forward slash markets event. That's economist.com forward slash markets event. And if you're not yet a subscriber, you can go to economist.com forward slash podcast offer to sign up. And both of those links are in the notes for today's episode. And if you're listening to this after the 29th, still subscribe anyway, as you'll be able to catch up online at your leisure. Next, as the pandemic shut borders and shoppers stripped shelves of pasta, critics were quick to declare that the global food system was failing. They were wrong. The resilience and flexibility of food supply chains amazed the pessimists. But today, that system is under new pressure. Global food prices are surging. Food prices have been really remarkably hot since last autumn. Mathieu Favas is our finance correspondent and resident expert on the global food supply system. Uh, If I give you some facts and figures, uh, one key index from Bloomberg is 60% higher today than it was a year ago. Another benchmark of all things food from the UN is at its highest in 10 years. And this is starting to be noticed by companies around the world. Uh, In late July, Alan Jope, the boss of Unilever, which makes lots of things that may be in your cupboard or or your freezer, like ice cream or mayonnaise, 
They said the price of raw materials is causing its company's cost to grow at the fastest in a decade. Mathieu, what's behind this surge in prices? Well, it's, it's a confluence of, of factors. It's huge changes in demand with critical squeezes in, in supply. And if we start with demand, as restaurants and cafes reopen, demand for meat, fish and dairy, think of all these, these lattes we've been missing on our way to work. This is booming. I caught up with a, a dairy farmer in Canada, Alain Goubeau, who I had interviewed for Money Talks last year. So ironically, I was telling you what, a year ago, we were, we were <laughs> trying to get rid of milk and now we're like, just adding cows as fast as we can again. China is also rebuilding its herds of, of pigs, which were devastated uh, two years ago by an episode of swine flu. And greater demand for meat and animal uh, produce has uh, a multiplier effect on the demand for crops. Your input costs are going up. It's just you're scratching your head because one week you're making an assumption on a feed ingredient being worth 100 bucks a ton, and the next week it should be 200 and you typically you might try to forward contract for six months on some of these prices as, as a buyer of them. And now you're kind of like, it's harder to get people to commit to that. And at the same time, you've got higher oil prices, which increases demand for, for crops that are used to make biofuels, because these become more competitive as uh, the price of oil rises. OK, so demand has surged. What's happening on the supply side? And how much is this still a question of COVID-19 and the, the pandemic disrupting supply chains? Well, that, that's part of it. And, and in fact, one of the people I've been speaking with is Janine Mansour. She's the port administrator of, of New Orleans. Container shipping lines are in this complete power seat now because capacity is very tight and demand is very strong. So the freight rates have gone up 10x, like 10 oh, times wow. what we saw pre-COVID. The surge of demand in America for, for goods made in China means that the companies that own the containers can get better prices sending the containers there. And this is having consequence uh, elsewhere and everywhere. Our largest coffee importers even struggling getting empty equipment in Brazil. And so they're now for the first time like ever are just taking whatever they can get and using 40 foot containers, even though the coffee's max weight limit is reached before they can fill the whole container. And then you've got a range of other factors, drought in, in North and South America, rising bulk shipping rates. This cocktail of forces is boosting global wholesale prices. For example, soya beans and corns are respectively 56% and 68% more expensive than they were a year ago. And uh, it must be said that if this feeds into border inflation, uh, it would be bad for consumers. And, and, you know, in some countries we are seeing that already. But, but it's actually really good for the giant firms that source, store and ship these uh, foodstuffs. Just tell us a bit more about these big companies, because... I think these are not household names to many people. So it'd be really interesting to know just how much they shape the global food system. No, no, that's right. It's, it's an opaque sector that owns a vast network of silos, railways, uh, vessels and data. So basically all the infrastructure and information you need to ship uh, foodstuffs around the world. And there are really four massive ones. They're called ADM, Bungie, Cargill and Louis Dreyfus, uh, known as the ABCDs, conveniently. But their history is actually really long. Uh, they've been matching buyers and sellers of foodstuffs for more than a century. They thrived on population growth, on rising prosperity, on uh, the edge of globalization. But what we've seen in recent years, in you know, less than a decade, is that they began to wilt. Up to just a bit before the pandemic, we had a, a glut in crops, and that kept prices low and stable. You had better new technology and real-time data, which helped the farmers reduce the middleman's power. And then you had challenges that started to emerge. This, this had a very big impact on their sales. Between 2013 and 2016, their combined sales of the ABCDs plummeted 
by almost a third to $250 billion. But then the pandemic happened, and uh, that was an unexpected windfall, uh, a bumper year, you could say. Their combined net profits doubled to $4.5 billion last year, and strong quarterly results this week suggest that they'll do even better this year. So why do the ABCDs, let's call them big agriculture, do so well out of this extreme volatility? Yeah, there's a few reasons. Uh, First of all, high prices give them more margin to play with. And then bigger volumes, as producers try to lock in high rates themselves, let them recoup faster the fixed costs that they basically have to pay to set up all this infrastructure. And finally, more volatility makes it possible to exploit price discrepancies across time and space. And in the meantime, they have all this, this capital, all this cash that they can invest in, in less cyclical businesses. Uh, you know, they're trying to diversify to basically protect themselves against uh, prices going down again or their costs going up. Uh, so ADM, for example, expected business in, in food ingredients. So this is the, you know, the flavorings, the colorings, the starches. ADM expects this business to grow twice as fast as its core businesses. Bungie, uh, for its part, is selling its old assets to invest in, in plant proteins, so trying to surf on the appetite for, for vegetarian food. And Cargill has become one of America's largest meat processors, as well as a big investor in, in, in food venture capital, so betting on the future of, of food. So in short, you know, the, the, the future for these companies looks pretty bright. And to go back to the current surges, Mathieu, what do those mean for consumers? To what extent are the concerns that we saw last year now returning? Could we even see shortages? Well, it is concerning, uh, but not really for the reasons that most people think. If you look at the high prices that we're seeing, they look impressive, but we started from a pretty low base. You know, we had a trough in March 2020. And then what we saw also in previous food crises, not, most notably in 07, 08, when we had a massive uh, rise in global food prices, which stoked food riots across the world. There was back then a rise in protectionist measures. Uh, exporters basically started to block exports. Today, that's not the case. And actually, it, it's really interesting. In, in this sector, in agriculture, the cure to high prices is often high prices. As we heard from Anna Grubo, you know, uh, as farmers notice more demand for milk, they buy new cows. And domestic prices don't move in a linear fashion with uh, the price of global staples. Because we eat a lot of processed foods and there is a margin at every step in producing this processed food. When the pandemic started, there were worries about the system failing us. That, that did not happen. And this time again, it is not failing us. But the rising cost of food will cause huge harm for a concentrated number of, of countries. So in rich countries, because of the way that big agriculture can ride out the volatility, price volatility gets smoothed out at the consumer level. But in poor countries, that's less the case. Is there something that can be fixed here? So you're right that the problem is not really with the global system. In fact, the fixes should be local ones. You know, it's aid to poor countries. It's income support to the poorest in these countries. Uh, It's the reopening of, of borders to ensure easy transportation. And above all, it's vaccination so that food markets can reopen, transport links can function properly. So that's a concrete example of of why vaccination matters to everyone. Mathieu Favas, thank you very much. You're welcome, Patrick. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. 
Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And finally, over the past decade, there has been a drastic shift in the role of central banks. Before the financial crisis of 2007 to 2008, they had become focused on using monetary policy, mainly changes in interest rates, to control inflation. They left pretty much everything else to elected politicians. But since then, successive rounds of quantitative easing, buying bonds to help stimulate the economy, have left central banks holding piles and piles of government debt, in effect financing government spending. And the pandemic, which has triggered huge amounts of public spending and borrowing, has left central banks holding even more. This blurring of roles has led some to worry about central banks' independence. Here's Andy Haldane, who until last month was chief economist at the Bank of England. It's one of the sort of unwritten rules of central banking. And if I start talking about fiscal policy, uh, fiscal policymakers, in other words, politicians, start talking about monetary policy, and that tends to end badly. The Bank of England, for instance, now holds more than a third of the British government's entire stock of debt. Our Britain economics correspondent, Duncan Weldon, has been looking back through history to find out just what is at stake when that line begins to blur. So in Britain, I think the, sort of the best analogy we've got now to the situation at the moment is to look back at the two world wars and their aftermath. The British government ran a fiscal deficit of around just over 14% of GDP in the last financial year. Now, that's higher than any peacetime year on record. And the only really comparable borrowing we've got is the borrowing of 1914 to 1918 and the borrowing of 1939 to 45. And if we look back to 1918, say, Britain was then grappling with another pandemic, what came to be called the Spanish flu. It was also dealing with the aftermath of the First World War. It, of course, came out of that war victorious, but there wasn't a lot of cause for economic jubilation, was there? Oh, no, absolutely not. You know, World War I is a, is a military victory for Britain, and, you know, the empire is bigger than it's ever been in 1919, and Britain is a, one of the big free powers at the Paris Peace Conference. But although it was a military victory, it was a fiscal disaster. So... Debt to GDP jumped from about 40% before the war to closer to 140% after the war. And interest rates rose. So the 1917 war loan, one of the big bonds issued by the government, came with a yield of 5%. Whereas, you know, pre-war borrowing had generally been under 3%. So that all meant this really sort of toxic legacy for the 1920s, with interest rates uh, rising with, at some points, more than a third of tax revenues just being swallowed up on meeting the interest payments on debt. The crisis got so bad that um, Neville Chamberlain, when he was Chancellor in um, the early 1930s, was forced to ask the public to voluntarily, and voluntarily in inverted commas there, swap their 5% bonds for new ones at 3.5% to try and reduce the bills. The scheme is going to affect an enormous economy an economy in national expenditure is the thing that we're all looking for. How did the shadow of that period affect the management of the economy during the Second World War? So, you know, one lesson they'd taken from the experience of the 20s and 30s was that's not how we're doing it this time. There was no pretense of business as usual. The Bank of England's job became just to help the government finance the war. We must face a vast expense which can only be borne if we bear it all together. 
So, you know, the, the bank helped finance it. Rates were kept very low. But that period of what economists call fiscal dominance, when the central government is essentially telling the central bank what to do, didn't end in 1945. It stretched all the way out into the mid-1970s. You know, for that entire sort of three-decade period, fiscal policy took the lead in trying to stabilise the business cycle, and interest rates were being set with at least one eye on what does this mean for the public debt burden. So real interest rates, that is, interest rates after inflation, were negative, below zero, for more than half of the time between 1945 and 1980. You add it all together, over half of the reduction in the debt ratio between 1945 and 1980 was because of this fiscal dominance, this financial repression. And this, it's worth saying, wasn't just a British thing. We were seeing similar policies in America and much of Europe during those decades. But keeping interest rates artificially low had other consequences, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, it, made, it made managing the government's debt burden much easier. Um, it meant there was no need for sort of tight public spending plans or higher taxes. But when monetary policy wasn't focused on inflation, inflation started to get out of hand. You know, we had the experience of the 1970s. In the last two years, Britain has suffered one of the highest inflation rates in Europe. Price increases reached a peak in June 1975, when they were running at nearly 40% a year. By the 1990s, it seems that, you know, lessons had been learned a new framework was put in place. Uh, that was to really separate fiscal policy from monetary policy, to set up generally independent central banks, which would target inflation to stabilise the economy. You know, that involved some very painful periods in the 1980s, winning that credibility. The worry that many economists have is that hard-won credibility could vanish if investors think you know, central banks are no longer just about inflation. Central banks really... They're helping the government meet their bills. So is that line starting to blur again? Have governments ended up making central banks do too much of the work in this crisis? Well, you know, a lot, a lot of people are starting to think so. So the Financial Times did a survey in January of the 18 largest managers of GILT's UK government debt. And the vast majority of those managers think that the real aim of QE is to help lower government borrowing costs, help the government finance itself. Andy Haldane, the bank's department chief economist warned in his last speech in June of the risk of fiscal dominance. And on the 16th of July, a House of Lords committee led by Lord Mervyn King, who's a former governor of the Bank of England, who was the governor when quantitative easing was introduced, called quantitative easing a dangerous addiction. Acceptable if this was a short term policy. But you know, here we are more than a decade later and QE is bigger than ever. And are those fears justified? Isn't the politicisation of central banks to some extent inevitable during a crisis of this magnitude? It's not inevitable. But it was very, very easy, I think, to maintain this separation between monetary policy and debt management at a time when government debt was, you know, 40-something percent of GDP, as it was before the financial crisis. You know, we've seen in the last year, government debt to GDP jump from about 80% to closer to 100%. When debt is high, the lesson of history is that the temptation will always be strong. You know, central banks in a lot of rich countries now find themselves in similar situations, holding a lot of government debt. Investors start to worry that maybe, maybe they've bowed to political pressure. I think they probably could do more 
to reassure investors that they are not bending to that pressure. As for the Bank of England, I mean, it could start by you know, perhaps more openly setting out the rationale for QE and to do something it's been talking about doing for a long time and actually to outline its plans for an eventual exit when that time is necessary. Duncan Weldon, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, if you'd like to hear more in the same vein, as it happens, exactly a year ago today, our colleagues Ratna Shanbog and Henry Kerr made a special episode of Money Talks examining how the pandemic is reshaping macroeconomics. It's called The Age of Free Money, and it uses everything from The Wizard of Oz to the Nixon tapes to explain how central banks and governments split the task of managing the economy. So, search for Money Talks, The Age of Free Money, on your podcast app. I highly recommend it. That's all from me for now. Thank you so much for listening to Money Talks. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, or write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Our producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan, Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Patrick Lane. And in London, this is The Economist. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.